Goodness, it's good to be up here. If, if you've been with us uh, recently, you will know that uh, it's been a while since I've been up here preaching. There was illness, or there was travel, and then there was illness, and I'm more giddy to be up here uh, today than I, than I have been in a long time. Um, I've been so excited to get back up here. Every week, I've been so grateful for, for Ben and for Mike and for Scott and their preaching feeding us week in and week out, but I thought, hey, I want my turn. I want to be back up there. So it's good to be up here. Uh, my name is Damien. I do want to thank you all for being here. And as Ben said, uh, we're starting our vision series. And I think the, you know, the biggest risk or challenge for me in this series is to try to say everything that we've been thinking about for two years, right? And that's just impossible. So this is, in a, in a real sense, an introduction. It's, it's a it's a foretaste. It's a wetting of the appetite. It's, it's an appetizer, whatever metaphor you want to use. But I, but I pray that it's clear. And I pray that there's something about it that's compelling to you, that you would listen, that you would hear. And the point of a vision is that you would see, right? That you would see. That's why vision statements start off with, we want to see. And so hopefully it engages your heart and engages that part of your imagination. And so what I need to do now, uh, gladly, is pray the prayer of illumination. So please stand so that we can ask God to illuminate our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. Let your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading, first from Jeremiah chapter 29, and then the gospel of John chapter 15. Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And then the words of our Lord in John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is God's word. Please be seated. So Ben mentioned... Our vision, like we have been at the beginning, week in and week out, and I'll say it again. Our vision is to see our communities flourish through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And flourishing is a popular concept. It's everywhere. It's on Starbucks cups. It's in commercials. It's in company names. It's in academic journals. It's everywhere. But I tell you one thing, it's not new. This idea of flourishing has been In every philosophy, every quest, every desire, every adventure, every time a person got on a boat to sail into the unknown to find something new, deep down, 
the desire was for flourishing. Is there something better? Is the good life right there? What gives me the good life? What gives me hope and happiness and flourishing? It's at the heart of every society. And if we're honest, it's at the heart of all we do. Every day, we long to be happy. We long to flourish, right? The desire to have a job that fits our gifts. The desire to have rich relationships. The desire to have goals and dreams worthy of our life, worthy of our aspiration. At the core of all of this is a desire to flourish. It's a desire for the deepest happiness that we would know. It's not a new question. So the first place we've got to start off simply is what is flourishing. Now, of course, we can't get into all of this today. But I want to say a few things about flourishing. First of all, I want to say flourishing is not a niche interest of New City. It's not like we made this up. It's not like we fit this into the Bible. In fact, flourishing is integral to the story of Scripture. Human flourishing is integral to the kingdom of God. Human flourishing is what salvation is about. See, flourishing was God's vision from Genesis 1 and 2, right? Things were to multiply and to be fruitful and to grow humans and all that we cultivate were to bring about flourishing. And Jesus says that he comes to bring salvation. That is what? Life. And what kind of life? Abundant life. Overflowing life. You could say flourishing life. So flourishing at its heart is actually everything in right relationship. It's us in right relationship with God. Us in right relationship with ourself and others and creation. That would provide a flourishing society, a flourishing community. Now, this includes things oftentimes more than the scope that we might think of salvation. For example, a flourishing place in the scriptures is a place where there's a thriving economy, where people have jobs that allow them to contribute to society and use their gifts, where people have jobs that allow them to provide for their family. Flourishing is also a place where there is no injustice. You see, it's almost a litmus test. How much injustice is in your community? And whatever the answer is to that, that tells you where flourishing is. If injustice is high, flourishing is low. If flourishing is high, injustice is low. Systemic injustice, relational injustice, institutional injustice, whatever it is, flourishing is a picture of, of peaceful and enjoyable relationship with God, self, others, and nature. And flourishing is when we all steward our God-given resources for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Can you imagine what this would be like? Can you imagine if every single person woke up this morning in Orlando and their desire was to steward all that they had, their networks, their education, their finances, their house, their possessions, their dreams, their desires, to steward those things for the glory of God and the good of their neighbor. This is a picture of a flourishing society. And really... What we're really saying essentially is our vision to see our communities flourish to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the vision of the Lord's prayer. The picture that Jesus gave us, the prayer that Jesus gave us, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it goes on. You see, to pray for God's kingdom to come is to pray for flourishing because if God reigns, everything flourishes. If God comes and his kingdom is growing, flourishing grows. You see, we didn't make this stuff up. It's not a niche interest. It's core to God's purposes in the world. 
And why we'll spend weeks and months and years unpacking what it means for us to cultivate flourishing as a community of believers, both gathered and sent. This morning, what I want us to walk away with is is something very practical, I hope. The beginning, maybe, of us all wondering, so how will we participate in this large vision that there's no way New City could ever accomplish on its own? Are you kidding me? Talk about the height of hubris that we think that we somehow, on our own, this measly congregation, doesn't mean we're not valuable. It just means that we're not enough, right? To see this vision come about, right? We're gonna need to cultivate a desire for partnerships with other churches and other congregations. We're, we're gonna have to see this happen. But how can you and I tomorrow wake up and participate? That's what I want us to talk about the rest of the time. How can you and I wake up tomorrow and participate in this vision of flourishing. So another way to ask it is, how do we cultivate flourishing in our everyday life if this vision is worthy to give our life to? So the first thing, and I'm gonna tie this into the passage today, the Jeremiah 29 passage, is the way we cultivate flourishing around us in everyday life is we must faithfully reside, right? Think about residence. Now, what's interesting is if you look at Jeremiah, they do not want to reside in Babylon, They want to reside in Jerusalem where they're the majority culture, where they're in charge, where everything goes their way. That's where they want to reside. But the problem is, is that through their disobedience and God's providence and vision and mission, he sends the Babylonians to come in and to conquer them. And then the Babylonians do what they do when they conquer a nation. They take all of the most educated people and they take them back to Babylon to try to assimilate them into the culture. Now they're exiles. That's the word that's been given. They've been taken out. And so what's interesting is there were some prophets in this day, not Jeremiah, there were some prophets that said, hey, this is what you need to do. God's going to take you back to Jerusalem really soon. Okay. God is going to make you the majority culture. He's going to put you back in charge really soon. So what you need to do to be faithful is hunker down and become insular, protect yourself. Okay, don't go out, don't be on mission, don't risk anything because God's gonna get you out of here soon. He's gonna save you out of this place soon. And Jeremiah says, that's a lie. And then in Jeremiah 29, you have a letter to the exiles. If you have your Bible, the heading in your Bible probably will say, letter to the exiles, Jeremiah 29. And this has become one of the more famous verses, uh, set of verses in the letter to the exiles. This idea of God saying through Jeremiah, hey, I know Nebuchadnezzar was the one that conquered you and took you out, but I just want to make this clear. I'm the one that actually sent you. I'm the one that put you there, right? That's what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. So this is what I mean by reside. God has put you in whatever neighborhood you're in. God has put you in whatever institution you serve in. God has put you wherever you go, you are sent there. And what does it mean then to reside? What what needs to happen in our minds to go from a place where we expect comfort, we expect power, we expect deference, to find ourselves in a place where we may be marginalized, we may be Pushed to the side, we may be squashed, we may be mocked, we may be all types of things. What does it mean to faithfully reside in that place? Well, first of all, I need to quickly tell you, just in case you're wondering, well, this is a letter to Jeremiah. That's a long time ago. Does, how does this apply to us? We're not really exiles, are we? 
Yes, we are. If you were with us in our series in 1 Peter, it starts off to the exiles, those who are sent out. You see, we, we are exiles. We understand that when Peter tells us and teaches us as a church that we are exiles, he teaches the church to live with their eyes wide open, understanding that God has sent them wherever they are. And so to faithfully reside and to seek the welfare of places where God has put us, there must be this outward orientation. Look at this word welfare in Jeremiah 29. Look in your worship folder. Verse seven, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile for and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The interesting thing is this word welfare is the key to understanding the life of an exile, God's desire for mission. And this idea of exile is a, I'm sorry, of welfare is a translation of a really robust Hebrew word, shalom. And that's not that scary of a word because a lot of us have heard that word before, shalom. We oftentimes say, says means peace. Well, like many biblical words in Hebrew or Greek, the meaning is so robust in the original language, there's really not one word that captures all of its essence when you translate it. And shalom is one of those words, okay? And so in this case, in the ESV, what we see is we see welfare. In the NIV, it says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And so what we could say is welfare, what the ESV is trying to capture from this word shalom, and peace and prosperity, what NIV is trying to capture from this word shalom, we could gloss, we could say, really what we're talking about is flourishing in every way. Seeking the welfare of the city is to seek the flourishing of the city. Now, you and I, we need this vision of seeking the welfare of our city to reframe a few things about how we think about residing, how we think about faithfully residing in the places God has sent us. And the first thing that needs to be reframed is the ordinary and the extraordinary. Look at verse four. I mean, this was the letter that Jeremiah sent to the exiles from the Lord. It should be really inspirational, right? It should be filled with hyperbolic language. And it says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Get married, have sons and daughters. And then the next generation, they should get married. And they should have sons and daughters. That's really extraordinary, right? You see, one of the things that has to be most striking when we read verses 5 and 6 is that God calls them to ordinary, faithful residing. And we balk at the idea of ordinary, don't we? I mean, to us, when we try to think about how would we apply this to our life, it's hard for us too because we've been shaped and formed to despise the ordinary. We want big, new, shiny, fast, impressive. And in fact, in despising the ordinary, we end up confusing the ordinary with other words and phrases. Words like, well, ordinary is mediocre. Or phrases like, well, ordinary is ho-hum. But the reality is, is that God has called us to the ordinary. 
we tend to think that if it's not big and loud, we've settled. That God's not happy with us. That God is always thinking, man, when are they really going to get their act together? But yet God calls his people to live faithfully and ordinarily. So when you and I think about this, how do we live an ordinary life? An ordinary life that is faithfully residing. Well, I would just say this. We live our life faithfully when we live it with gospel intentionality. And that means nothing until I explain it, just so you know. Gospel intentionality means nothing until I tell you what I mean. This is what I mean. Gospel means good news, particularly the good news that Jesus raised from the dead and his kingdom is now beginning. His kingdom reign is growing. That's the good news. That is the proclamation of the gospel. And so if Jesus has raised from the dead, which he has, and his kingdom has been inaugurated, which it has, you understand that all of life now must be a response to that reality. Even the very ordinariness of our life must be a response to the reality that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and the new heavens and new earth has broken in to the present right now. That's what it means that you're a new creation. The Holy Spirit came and made you new. And so now new people, new creations live ordinary lives in light of the extraordinary resurrection. And so when you and I live our life by faith and because of grace, we, we understand that we've been made children of the family and citizens of the kingdom. And now we get to inhabit every moment in light of this reality, every conversation, every email, every discipline of your child, right? Kids, you're in here, this happens, right? We do it because we love you. We do it because Jesus tells us to, because he wants us to love you like he loves you and like he loves us. And every moment must be lived out in light of the resurrection. And so living this way, we will begin to not only see ordinary things as beautiful, but also extraordinary things as ordinary. And this is what I mean. As the kingdom begins to grow, the types of things we see as extraordinary, like different cultures coming together, like people being generous, like people serving the poor, that will become increasingly ordinary because the Holy Spirit is changing us. So we must have our ordinary and extraordinary reframed. The second thing that needs to be reframed is the other to neighbor. Our understanding of other must be completely reframed to that person. Those people are not other with a capital O, they are neighbor. Now, when you look at Jeremiah 29, that's insane. Let's just remind ourselves what happened. This is the most powerful pagan nation who came in and just conquered Jerusalem because they could, because they wanted to. And now God tells them, hey, these people that just murdered some of your people when they were conquering you, these people who took you away and disrupted you, your welfare is integrally tied with their welfare. Seek their welfare. Seek their flourishing. Love them. Actively seek it. Right? That's, to say it 
Simply, that is shocking. And some of us, we don't really feel the weight. And I can't get us to feel the weight maybe, but the closest concept that helps me understand is what author Alan Jacobs in his book, How to Think, what he references from an anthropologist named Susan Harding. And this is the category. There's a category of the repugnant cultural other. The repugnant cultural other. She's an anthropologist who studied fundamentalist Christians. And when she wrote her study, her anthropologist scholar friends looked at her and accused her of being a secret Christian. Why would you care about those people, they said. And she was shocked by this. And it made her realize and think, okay, I'm an anthropologist. Shouldn't I be interested in all cultures? Shouldn't I be interested in the way all people live? But you see, the academy in her school had viewed Christians as the repulsive cultural other, the repugnant cultural other. And it shocked her. And that's what gave her the phrase. But the reality is, is we all, all of our communities view a, another community, at least one other community, as that repugnant cultural other. Maybe it's people we see on social media. Maybe it's the other political party. Whoever it is, there is a group of people that you view as the repugnant cultural other. Although we are way too sophisticated at New City to ever say that out loud. But we absolutely view people as the other. Our community has disdain and suspicion of other communities that don't believe what we believe. And that's a problem. We cannot faithfully reside when we have categories of repugnant cultural others. We cannot faithfully reside. Now, when you look at what Jeremiah is saying in this letter, he's not saying to these people that they are to assimilate to the culture. They're not to become one with the culture, but they're also not to separate from the culture. There's a third way. The only options we have are not to assimilate or to separate But what? Well, I wish I could think of a word that rhymes sort of with the eight at the end, like assimilate, separate, but I can't. So what I'll say is it's not assimilate, it's not separate, it's seeking the welfare of the city. I'll just use Jeremiah's words. We cannot seek the welfare with categories of this repugnant cultural other. So we don't assimilate, we don't separate, we seek their good, but we have to do this as a contrast community, a community that's living lives that are so beautiful that people are actually attracted to it. And so this is shown in verse four, when, four and five, when Jeremiah tells them to marry and to multiply. See, Babylon would have settled them in communities like themselves. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have mixed the Jews with the Babylonians. They would have settled in their own community, which gave them the opportunity to still marry other Jews, to still remain a contrast people, which is important. We must be a contrast people to the culture around us. But at the same time, we can't be an insular community of contrast. We have to be a beautiful community of contrast. We have to be a community that lives in such a way where we move toward other people and we are inviting to them because we love each other so well. Uh, the, the word that the New Testament uses is ambassador, ambassador, right? What does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents a foreign kingdom in a certain kingdom, representing the interests of their kingdom for the good of the kingdom they live in, right? So we have dual citizenship. We have been sent as exiles, representing the interests of the kingdom of God, but not for ourselves, but we're conduits for the common good and flourishing of those around us. 
And if we get that wrong, we're unfaithful in our residing. We're consumers only. We use people. We use the city. We use our communities. We use our institutions. We say, I don't care about you. I just want to draw a paycheck from you, but I don't care about the goodness of this institution. I don't care about the goodness of these communities. I just want to use you so that I can do my own Christian thing over here. That's wrong. And it's unfaithful to our call as exiles. And I need to repent of that. I need to repent of that. I think one of the ways that we can be these types of people is by being truly hospitable. Some of you have asked me, what's one of the things you want New City to become? And I've said, I want us to be one of the most hospitable churches people have ever experienced. Now, hospitality in the Bible is more, it's not less than, but it's more than simply being friendly. It's more than simply having people over for dinner, although it cannot be less than those things. Hospitality is doing those things in such a way where the people you're pursuing, the people you're inviting in are strangers. The Greek word for hospitality is stranger love. You go and you invite strangers to be hospitable, but what's the end goal? It's not merely charity. It's to take strangers and make them friends. That's the biblical understanding. And who should understand this more than Christians? We were enemies of God. And he pursued us and he took us from enemies and strangers to friends and children. And this isn't a tit-for-tat relationship. You may look and say, if you're cynical or if you lean that way, you may say, oh, this is tit-for-tat. He says, seek the welfare of the city because then that's where you'll find your welfare. But there's one word that won't let that happen and it's the word pray. You don't just seek their welfare so you can participate in their welfare, but you pray for them. You pray for their good. You pray that they would come to know the Lord, that they would flourish in all ways, and we pray for them. And the third way we need our lives reframed is our expectations of comfort to culture creating and cultivating. Listen, how would this small community make a dent in the flourishing of Babylon, the capital city? How will this small community join hands with other communities like us and make any impact, anything of good in this city? Well, we have, to faithfully revive, we have to faithfully reside, but not as consumers, right? The NIV translates this to build houses and they insert this phrase and settle down. You see, whenever you decide to settle down somewhere, if you buy a house, if you say, I'm committed to working in this place, I'm committed to living in this neighborhood, it changes the way you see everything, it changes the way you view things. It changes everything. And so when we settle down, we stop thinking, what can this place give me? What can I get out of this place? What does it offer me? But we actually say, how can I cultivate the good that's in this place? And how can I weed the bad? And how can I create something new that will actually contribute to the flourishing of this place? And before you think creation is something only entrepreneurs can do, only creative people can do, let me share a story with you. How can we actually create culture in our institutions? How can we cultivate things that make a difference? Imagine this. Imagine that um, it's on a a frigid uh, Orlando winter day of 55 degrees. Okay, picture that. We're all freezing. We're all wearing gloves, two socks, and hats. All right? Imagine that, okay? You come home from work, and you're thinking, man, Uh, What do we have? Ingredients. I'm going to make this for dinner, this for dinner. And imagine you have your teenage son or daughter who's already there and you walk in and you smell something wonderful. 
you smell food. And, and you remember the conversation you had last week when they were complaining about not liking onions in their soup, right? They're complaining. Mom and dad, I don't like onions in the soup. Don't put onions in the soup anymore. And they're complaining and they're complaining. And guess what? The answer is still the same. Eat the soup. There's onions in the soup. Complaining's not gonna help. But imagine a week later, you come home thinking what you're gonna make and you smell something already cooking and you walk in and your teenage son or daughter is making soup with no onions in it. And you sit down and you're so delighted because you were hungry, you were cold, and here's this soup and everyone's flourishing. Everyone's eating. Everyone's enjoying one another. You see, what's the difference between what that teenage child did the week before? They complained, nothing happened. No one flourished. Everyone did not enjoy dinner. But then the next week, they created, they cultivated, they offered culture, and it changed everything. That simple. It can be that simple wherever we are because consumerism expects ease and comfort, new and shining. It says, if this is hard, this isn't worth it. I need to move on. But faithfully residing changes our perspective, reframes our perspective to constructive culture making because that's what image bearers do. They create. Now, this is a lot, right? This is a lot. You're already busy. You're already trying to keep that kid next to you from screaming and running, up, running away. And you're thinking, I can barely listen to the sermon. How am I supposed to go create culture for flourishing in Orlando? Right? Where do I get that energy? And I would say that to answer our original question of how can you cultivate flourishing? The first one, what we've been talking about is to faithfully reside. And don't miss this. We must wholly abide. John 15, abide in me. And I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, I want us to respond to this sermon. And there are lots of good ways to respond. Some of you have already taken this worship folder and you've already thought, okay, how can I, how can I uh, go create culture in my, uh, in my organization, my team tomorrow that's really frustrating me? How can I stop complaining? And how can I add? How can I construct? How can I offer? That's a good thing. I hope you do that. I also hope you open your calendars and figure out all the things you need to start saying no to so you have margins to go find out what your neighbor's name is so you can invite them into your house. I hope you do that too. I hope I do that. I hope that uh, we think about intentionality in our family and raising our kids and knowing that raising our kids isn't an end in itself, but we're actually raising citizens of the kingdom and for the good of the community. And we're teaching them how to serve. All of these things are good. But if the place that we start is with a white piece of paper to brainstorm how we're gonna be on mission. If that's where we start, we make a fatal error. We make a fatal error. You see, the source of all flourishing, the source of all life is Jesus Christ, the vine that we must abide in. And when we abide in him, we realize all of our needed provision has been given to us. And this means that we're now free to pursue faithful residing because Jesus himself did this in the incarnation. Jesus did this for us. We don't have to think or earn about anything. We have been given all provision. We will not ultimately die. We will be raised like Jesus was, was raised. So therefore, we should be free to take the most risk. We should be free 
to wade through the awkwardness of inviting the other into a friend, into stranger, to neighbor, and friend, right? You see, when we see that Jesus has provided this provision for us, and we really reflect on John 15, that the Father sent Jesus into exile to pursue the flourishing of his people. So of course he's gonna send us into exile to pursue the flourishing of his future people, those whom he would call to himself and the common good, right? When we look at this passage, when we look at the way we need to be reframed, look at this. Our understanding of the extraordinary and ordinary need to be reframed. And Jesus has done the extraordinary to save and give hope and dignity to our ordinary. Jesus has done the extraordinary to save and give hope and dignity to your ordinary. Jesus has pursued us to change us from other, even enemy, to friend and neighbor. And Jesus left the comfort of the throne room of the Father to pursue us and redeem us. And so, of course, he would send us to do the same. You see, when we abide in him, the source of life, he produces the fruit, we bear the fruit. We don't produce the fruit. He produces it. He produces our flourishing. And through that production of fruit, we get to be conduits of flourishing in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We're so grateful that you sent your son. And Jesus, we're grateful that you pursued us, leaving the comfort of your father to faithfully reside on earth and that you yourself abided in the father's will. And you did that on our behalf. And we ask now that we wouldn't leave here first and foremost thinking of all the ways we failed and being condemned or thinking of all the ideas we have and being excited in our own strength. Don't let that happen. Let us first turn to you, Jesus, the source of all life and flourishing. Let us experience flourishing so that out of the overflow and abundance of that flourishing, we have life to give others. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.